The Incomparable, number 403, April 2018. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Snell. And in this episode, we're, it's the first of two episodes, uh, because we so many people wanted to talk about this subject, suggested by Lisa Schmeiser, who was not here, by the way putting her definitely in the second definition of glenning, which is to suggest a topic and then not be on the episode. Uh, And this is what she suggested when we were looking for episode uh, subjects. She said, how about your childhood canon, your childhood nerd canon? Panelists talk about the four formative works they can point to as shaping their taste for life. So basically, we're going to go back and uh, it's not a draft, but we are going to take turns in talking about, totally not a draft, uh, about uh, formative things from our youth. Um, I'm also not going to judge you one based on uh, what age you were and say whether that is childhood or not this isn't for that there's probably an episode of robot or not you could listen to that determines will you you be judging if they were actually formative enough will you be pulling up our history cross-checking yeah Yeah, i'll be like this doesn't now let me ask some questions about your current life backstory on your character sheet therefore it's not formative enough how could it be if given your current career how could you consider this which is an opposition to your current career formative haha i accuse you just just one more question yeah exactly (laughs) that is not going to happen uh instead uh these wonderful people are going to pick uh, in what is totally not a draft and talk about formative things from their childhood, which I think is a cool idea. And I've randomized the order, even though there's no uh, advantage to going first because this is not a draft. Uh, Jean McDonald will go first, though. Hello. Hi, Jason. Thanks for having me. <laughs> going second will be John McCoy. Hello. Hello. Let's pick some sophomore lit. Nope, let's not do that. <laughs> well, you, you'll be surprised. Oh, nice. Oh, or not. Who will find out? Or not. or not. Okay. Also, Liz Miles. Hello. Hello. Joe Steele is also here. Hello. Hello. And Tony Sindelar, your internet friend. Hello, nerds. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And, and then I will, I will go last, because even though this is not a draft, I am uh, trying to be a good host. So I wait until uh, everybody else is uh, done. Now let's, now let's get started and hear what Jean is going to blow us away with, with her first pick of this not a draft. Her first, first, this is our first round of sharing and Jean will share first. How about that? I got to get out of this draft mindset. It's not, it's not healthy. No, this is more like a a elementary school mindset. It's sharing day and everybody can bring in whatever they want and there's no shame to somebody else picking what you have. Right. The shame Um, will come from other sources. (laughs) Yes. I'm I'm worried about that already. Um, Now, I'm going to start with Star Trek, the original series. Um, I'm pretty sure I'm the only person here who watched it when it aired initially. And so I watched it when I was very young, and it definitely um, fit in and also skewed my ideas about science and space and the future. Um, So I think that um, I'm just going to talk about two episodes in particular, just to mention them, because I still remembered them really clearly from that time when I watched them as a kid, Uh, the Doomsday Machine, Mm. um, because a big scary thing could come through the galaxy and destroy planets with nobody knowing where it came from, or what its mission was. Um, Luckily, Spoiler alert, they did manage to destroy it (laughs) (laughs) because we wouldn't be here today if that had um, had been allowed to continue its murderous path. But then the notion of of space being the source of something just completely beyond our ken um, gave me childhood, you know, like excitement yet 
morbid fascination and scare uh, feeling of being scared. So, um, and I'm also going to throw in one uh, season three episode, which is not considered very good <laughs> anymore. But I like to think that you have to remember when people were watching it at the time, it it fit in with the, you know their mindset. And this would be the Mark of Gideon, which was about a planet that was overpopulated, mm. so overpopulated that all the people could do was stand up and walk around and bump into each other. And they kept showing like scenes from that planet of you know this densely packed humans it's really hard to imagine how that that planet you know and that culture really really uh operated but for me as a kid you know growing up in that period where you know it was all the you know cultural rage to talk about zero population growth and the problems that um are unchecked population growth would cause. So I couldn't really understand that, especially I think this episode came out in 1968 or nine, I didn't really understand the mechanics of population growth, perhaps, but I did know that it was bad. And I was really afraid that someday I would be standing in a white jumpsuit, walking around in a room, you know, where I couldn't get away from other people. So yeah. uh, <laughs> story, story but, checks out. Yeah. <laughs> so that things that's, you know, kind of, I think all of the things I have on my list are things that scared and fascinated simultaneously. And I'm really choosing as childhood, you know, pretty much before 10 years old. All right. The um, I'm, I'm fortunate that this is not a draft because I'm going to just amplify what you're saying right now instead of waiting until the end, because that is also my number one childhood formative nerd media work is Star Trek, the original series. I was born in 1970. So in the 70s, you could not escape Star Trek, the original series, playing those original 72 or whatever episodes um, five days a week. And for me, it was on Channel 2 at 5 p.m., Monday through Friday, and I watched Star Trek every single day for I don't know how many years. I don't know how many times through that lineup <laughs> that I would just keep watching those episodes over and over and over again. And it was, I can't imagine life before the original Star Trek. It was the thing that got me enthusiastic about, I mean, I literally don't remember discovering Star Trek. It was just there and I was super into it. And so the idea of spaceships and alien planets and strange, you know, strange new worlds and, and exploration and alien people uh, like Mr. Spock, all of these things were just kind of always there. And I took them for granted it, to the point where when Star Wars came out in 1977, I was like, well, wait a second. <laughs> what do you mean? There's <laughs> other, other star things. That's like, what, what is that about? Cause this is the, it's like, isn't it all just star? Star Trek and turned out no there's yeah. <laughs> there's going to be more of that um and so it was a huge thing a lot of formative images I remember that Mark of Gideon overpopulation thing and I didn't understand any of the political context at the time and the fact that there was uh what stand on Zanzibar was a, an influential science fiction novel of which was all about overpopulation um but I do remember that like imagine if you couldn't ever get away and there were always people all around you and that was <laughs> that was super memorable for me too and um you know I that also led me to take the plunge into um related media so like I discovered at some point a little bit later like when I was I don't know nine or 10 maybe or 11 that the uh that there were they, they were starting to be 
books, Star Trek books. There were some novelizations made of old episodes or of animated series episodes, and there were some original novels, and eventually there was like a there was an anthology of short stories that was basically like fan fiction that had been turned into a published anthology by official channels. And then they started doing the pocket timescape uh, uh, Star Trek books where basically like every month there was another Star Trek novel about the original cast and crew uh, which was all Star Trek was back then. And and that that was uh, that blew my mind too. So and that was in the sort of like yeah late seventies, very early eighties. Before I think around when the motion picture came out, but before Star Trek two came out. So um, you know from books and comics and the TV show and then into the movies, just the the single biggest influence on my on my childhood is the original series. It, hard to get out of the seventies, especially in the United States, um, as a <laughs> child without being inundated by Star Trek. The the you know especially before Star Wars came, but even after Star Wars came, because Star Wars was a movie, you could go see it in the theater a million times, but Star Trek was just filling the television every yeah. single day. <laughs> All right, uh, John, what uh, what do you have for us? Well, uh, I have a radio drama Ooh. called The Fourth Tower of Inverness that was uh, originally produced in 1972, but which I heard originally, I think, in 1978 or 79. Now, back in the, back in that time, um, NPR actually worked not just as a news media source, but as a source for all kinds of cultural stuff. And they had a production arm called NPR Playhouse and they would represent things that were done by the BBC or the CBC or by, uh, small production companies. And this is a production company called ZBS Media uh, that was founded in 1968 and believe it or not is still in existence today. So if you don't know about ZBS Media, I, uh, I encourage all of you to go right now to zbs.org and look at what they've accomplished over, I guess it's like 40, 50 years now of, 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 uh, doing these radio dramas. Uh, the fourth tower of Inverness is the story of a crazy world traveling seeker. Uh, uh, named Jack Flanders, who comes to a mysterious mansion owned by his aunt in Inverness. We're never quite told whether that means Inverness, Scotland, or it's another Inverness. And it has, it's a tower, it's a, a mansion that has three towers, but there is a fourth tower that appears in the night when the mysterious music plays from a jukebox. And it's a crazy, bizarre, uh, story. It is uh, full of all kinds of nutty stuff from 1972, including uh, audio from Baba Ram Das, uh, quotes from Lama Govinda, uh, some <laughs> incredibly sketchy racial humor, uh, and it is absolutely nuts. And the, the thing about it was I listened to it and I had no idea what I was hearing. And I had, and, and, and I, I glommed onto this so hard and I would record these episodes off of uh, my local NPR station, uh, which was running out of uh, Peoria at the time. And I, I, you know, in those days, there was no way to get these things. You just had to like record them onto cassette tapes. And I had all the stuff on cassette tapes and I had a friend who recorded uh, one cassette tape for me while I was out of town and he didn't start on time. And so for many, many years, I had only half an episode of that, of that, but, um, <laughs> but this led me to an obsession with 
spoken word and radio drama that went on through the 80s. It led me to discover all the great uh, works of the BBC, the CBC, um, National Radio Theater. I, I eventually heard the wonderful Canticle for Leibowitz adaptation through uh, the NPR Playhouse production. And it led me backwards in time to people like Stan Freeberg and uh, Firesign Theater. But as, as I said, uh, they... ZBS has continued to produce Jack Flanders mysteries or, or series up till sadly just this last year. Robert Lorick, the guy who played Jack Flanders, died after I don't know. At this point, I think it's something like thirty-five series that they've done. Wow! So everyone, so everyone, I, I, I cannot stress this enough. This was this was the the central uh, book from the central text for my childhood was was these radio ser- series. That's that's uh, you know, and and you're you're not from the the thirties and forties. 40- Right. Well, this is- well, this is this is the funny thing is that um, as I've gone on in life, I've met a lot of people who are interested in old time radio, and I, of course, I'm very familiar with uh, stuff from the 30s and 40s and 50s. But my interests always kind of lay more in the stuff that was produced from Stan Freeberg on, hmm. and 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 what the continuing interest amongst. It's interesting to me that, for example, the Firesign Theater picked up radio drama as part of the counterculture. It seemed like the all the hippies wanted to get back to things that were kind of pre-modern. And at that time, at that point, you know, television was taking over. It's it's fascinating to me today. There's there's a lot of people doing radio drama. Obviously, you know, definitely the the incomparable amongst amongst them. But uh, but at that time, uh, the the support all came from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, which of course got gutted in the 1980s uh, with the advent of the Reagan administration. And uh, sadly, there was this this window of time there where there was just an explosion of radio drama in this country in the late. 70s early 80s and uh, uh, that's all gone now well they and and we should mention that another thing that was under the npr playhouse umbrella and also then was also co-produced by the bbc is the star wars radio dramas which came out people uh, remember yes. those from npr and that is such an odd thought the idea that the star wars that star wars was adapted as a radio drama but it absolutely was and dan morin's not here um although for all i know when he talks about his uh, formative childhood things he may specifically mention the star wars radio dramas because he never misses a chance to mention them and <laughs> and uh brian they Daly, are pretty good the science fiction writer brian daly the british science fiction writer adapted that script and john madden the director of many many um really good uh movies was the director of the star wars um uh, radio drama it's kind of kind of wild um so yeah that was that was the modern modern for the era radio drama thing uh it was a it was a real thing until as you said it's sort of like uh kind of faded in the in the 80s but i i do remember some of that um we had a commercial station in san francisco that would broadcast radio dramas old ones on on sunday nights and that's how i got into the concept and i went to camp one summer and they were playing the i think empire strikes back radio drama and it blew my mind like what do you mean there's star wars on the radio but there it was so it's funny the spinoff me i mentioned the star trek books like spinoff media and things that are not quite like off-brand stuff sometimes is what influences you as a kid because you don't know you're not like oh that's just ancillary material that's not the real stuff when you're a kid you're like yes give me whatever i can get 
Sure. And sometimes you may have more access to that, right? I mean, you know, you, you didn't get control when you could watch Star Trek, but you could have stacks and stacks of, uh, you know, questionable quality Star Trek novels that mm-hmm. you could read whenever you want. There was no question when you about were... some of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because, cause, you know, we had to wait for the episode to air or whatnot, yeah. right? So it, I feel like when we didn't have streaming and on-demand stuff, there was, uh, and we were, you know, perhaps younger and less discerning of quality. Sure, I'll read seven Star Trek novels while I'm waiting for the uh, the next TNG episode to air. Why not? Yep. <laughs> My time is valueless. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what childhood's all about. Well, that's cool. Uh, as somebody just said in the chat room, um, it's really cool to have somebody pick something that, that uh, I've never heard of. <laughs> Let me take a short break to tell you about our sponsor this week. This episode of The Incomparable is brought to you by our friends over at Pingdom. If your website was down right now, if visitors couldn't access your content couldn't click that buy button what would you do and how would you know probably you'd get some complaints on twitter or in an email or maybe a panicked phone call saying your site's been down for a while basically you wouldn't know until it was too late and that's why you need pingdom they give you the peace of mind you need pingdom will let you know the moment your site goes down in whatever way is best for you they're dedicated to making the web faster and more reliable. If you're a Pingdom user, monitoring the availability and performance of your server, database, or website will be a breeze. They use more than 70 different global test servers to emulate visits to your site, checking its availability as often as every minute. So start monitoring your site today. All Pingdom needs is the URL. They will take care of the rest. You can go to pingdom.com slash snell. That's P-I-N-G-D-O-M dot com slash snell right now for a 14-day free trial, no credit card required. And when you sign up, use code snell at checkout for a massive 30% off your first invoice. Thanks to Pingdom for their support of The Incomparable. Okay, uh, Liz, what do you have? Um, I was going to go for a theme because otherwise I'd be talking about Doctor Who for an excessive amount of time. Mm. But I think that, you know, I talk about that a lot. So I, I was trying to be more like an onion and have layers and stuff. So I have gone for um, one of the sort of a... a, a Conglomerate is probably the wrong word. Anyway, um, the LucasArts point-and-click adventure games from the early <gasps> 90s, which in many ways I think is showing my age here because I suspect I'm a little tiny bit younger than some other people here. But yeah, um, my first experience of computer games was with a Commodore 64 that blew up when I was like a toddler. Blowing up was not my fault. That was due to some really dodgy <laughs> taping the plug work by one or other of my parents. And then we got a PC and stuff happened with the PC, like better colors and graphics and stuff. And my parents got into their heads that if it's a computer game, the PC, it's it's educational, uh, especially if there's like puzzle solving in it. So totally. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So when I was excessively young, um, I played, uh, first of all, The Secret of Monkey Island, yep. which remains one of the most magical delightful and special and brilliant computer games ever made and i think oh i think one of the most the most wonderful things about it is that it can't possibly replicate the experience today even if something was just as good as it because when i was that age what did it come out in 1990 so when i was playing it, i'd be like four or five um and it was scary as well as um you know, funny and exciting and adventurous. When the the stuff of Monkey Island is about a guy named Guybrush Threepwood who arrives on Melee Island and decides he wants to become a pirate and you follow his you um 
solve puzzles to help him become a pirate and he falls in love and defeats a zombie the zombie pirate LeChuck and it's you know it's a very very serious and deep game um it's not there's a lot of jokes it's very delightful <laughs> and funny and um but yeah but when I was that age it was also really scary like there were zombies in it and that was I think my first experience of zombies and there were like cannibals who wanted to eat you and okay, they had giant lemons <laughs> on their heads, but still it was like, okay, that's actually pretty scary. And then there was the, um, there's, there, oh God, there's so many puzzles in it. One of the, the, the puzzles when you get, <laughs> when you, when you eventually manage to open up the giant monkey head and descend beneath the island, you end up in a, a, a beautiful series of endless red caverns of stuff that I remember just walking around for hours because I had got no idea how you were supposed to find your way around. And somehow I got it into my head that it was one of those like pixel hunting puzzles that if only I could figure out the um, the magical trick in the whatever pixel it was that indicated where you were supposed to go, that I'd, I'd get it. I'd find my way to the ghost pirate ship and it'd be great and it'd be fine. But actually you had to go find a shrunken head from the cannibals instead. So that didn't work out so well for me. Liz... I was yeah. stuck on that puzzle for like five months when I yeah. was 10. And I, I like, there was a summer of my life that I could never get back because of that puzzle. <laughs> I know. Like, it just, it, it consumed me. <laughs> yes. I, yes. That was, um, yeah, it was pretty, pretty gosh darn tough and hard. Um, anyway, I think the most, the most memorable thing about this, uh, the game for me was that how utterly in love I was with Elaine Marley, who is a pirate governor of one of the islands and Guybrush's love interest. But also she's she was just brilliant. I loved that the fact that she was like the legal authority in this island whilst also being a pirate, whilst also actually winning the adventure, as it were, all by herself off screens, thus rendering pretty much everything that Guybrush did fairly meaningless. And uh yeah, I basically wanted to be, and I still want to be her when, when I grow up, because that was super cool. And I also like the pirate insults and the fact that you can say to, you know, like random people, um, you fight, you fight like a dairy farmer. And mm-hmm. if they know the correct answer, then you're like, oh, okay, you're all right. I guess I can trust you a little bit. You know, it's like, it's like a secret code thing. Um, yeah. And there was this, there was a series of games and obviously Monkey Island 2, uh, made by the same people, Ron Gilbert and Tim Schafer. It's just as good, if not better. But Act 2 in Monkey Island 2 is one of the most beautiful things I've ever been done in video games because you you set out on a series to find four map pieces and it's a series of interlinked, fairly complicated puzzles, or at least it was for me because I was, I think it was like seven or eight by that point, or was it just the next year? Anyway, I was very young. It took me like forever to do it. I was probably like 10 by the time I finished it. Um, but yeah, it's just, I played it again as an adult, not the new version, the proper version. And it was just gorgeous how everything linked together. And it was a bit weird to me that I actually could work out the puzzles, but also seeing how it, it, it had all been designed, it was kind of just magical, just appreciating the, um, you know, the brains behind that who managed to, to figure it all out. So yeah, it's pretty cool. Let's not ever talk about Escape from Monkey Island because that didn't happen. But the other <laughs> ones, the other ones, they're okay. They're fine. Oh, oh, I also, there's a guy in it called Stan and you hammer him into a coffin. And I remember working out that you had to trick him sit in the secondhand coffin and then kneel him in. And that was the most, that was a pretty magical moment from my childhood, like kneeling a guy into a coffin <laughs> for like good, for the purposes of good and stuff. 
But yeah, <laughs> that was fun. I like that. I felt very clever. I like hammer, nails, wooden coffin. Hmm, what can I do here? And I was like, yes, I'm right. I still remember that moment of satisfaction. It's pretty good. I'll, I'll be quiet now because otherwise I'm just going to go through all the puzzles I remember and tell you why. <laughs> I would subscribe to that podcast. So. <laughs> Another thing that I thought was absolutely brilliant that I was um, you arrive at one of the islands, I'm on KLN2, and there's a wanted poster of you. And if you look at it, it lists your crimes and all the crimes that lists you actually have committed, like uh, grave robbing and trespassing and attacking people with voodoo dolls and witchcraft. And um, I, used, I thought it was amazing that if you read the uh, read the poster and then came back later after you'd done more crimes and then read the poster again, it updated. It was new. <laughs> it was saying more things. And I was like, oh my God, it's like magic. How do they do that? But yeah, no, um, it was, it's informed my idea of what makes a good computer game of what's funny and what's not funny uh, and what adventuring means and what pirates should be like and mm. the relative scariness of zombies and has given me probably my earliest role model was Elaine Marley. So yeah, it was pretty good. I'll stop now. <laughs> Tony, did she take your pick? Yeah, that was, it's, not, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not a draft, but that was like my top pick. And <laughs> I, I, I mean... It turns out, Liz, we have a lot in common. I, 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 I'm a, a, a little bit older, uh, so I'm kind of ashamed that it, I think I was st- several years older, but very stuck on the same puzzles for a very long amount of time. <laughs> oh, um, it took me forever. Don't, yeah, don't underestimate how freaking long it took me to do even one puzzle. <laughs> You know, there was the, a similar thing where uh, my parents were very against uh, video games and television, but computers were okay because they were yes. educational. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so computer games uh, were were totally okay. Uh, they were not okay with the, the more violent ones. Uh, I don't think I ever played Doom at home. That was something oh. I played. At, uh, that was a that was a, a dangerous thing that I imbibed at, uh, at a friend's house. Like you know, like Super oh, no, Mario no, no. Brothers. I um, got Doom. I was like, yeah. what, when did Doom come out? I was so young, and they were like, oh no, it's on the PC. It's absolutely fine yeah you're shooting demons on mars but mm-hmm. you know who cares? it's educational it's, it's fine it was you apparently educational mm-hmm. it's like i can't it's they were so against the playstation my sister and i argued for playstation <laughs> for years and years and years and years and years and yet like yeah doom was fine Mm-hmm. It's, it totally makes sense. Uh, but just, I mean, I think it was, it was, uh, one of the early kind of graphical games that I played versus, I mean, I guess there were other games that were graphical, but looked, it looked like a cartoon at, to my mind, at least. <laughs> there were later ones that would come out that were even more cartoony. Uh, but, you know, it didn't look like an Atari game where you had to kind of pretend and be like, yeah, that's totally a dragon and not a duck. Um, <laughs> you know, so, and, and the, uh, the, the, the puzzle solving was, I mean, that's something that I've always enjoyed as a good puzzle. Uh, and I, and I love that. And the sense of humor just really was perhaps way too formative for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> So yeah, I, perhaps I, my uh, access to LucasArts games should have been more heavily regulated, oh but it wasn't, and here I am today. Um, but but just everything about the Secret of Monkey Island is just so delightful. I mean, it's 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 set in this very Pirates of the Caribbean, well, except before Pirates of the Caribbean style world, and uh, th- but it's not violent because it's a game that's supposed to be okay for kids. And even uh, Liz mentioned there's there's a, a lot of sword fighting in it, but it's insult sword fighting. So like there's the animation of you fighting swords with people and then w- one of the people has the chance to hurl an insult and then the other person if uh will win or lose depending on if they have the right comeback uh so there's a part of the first game where you just wander the countryside uh of the little island uh fighting people to learn their insults and comebacks um 
And of course, it's from the era of games where things are not actually learned in games. You totally have to have a piece of paper ready to write down like all the stuff uh, next to it to, to keep your little journal <gasps> outfits together. You? That's oh, cheating. Yeah. I had no. it all in my head. Uh, <laughs> literacy is a great invention that we came up with here over in the States. It's educational. Check it, check it out. Um, so... This would this would also explain a lot of the puns you make as well because that entire it, this thing explains is far far too much about me. So <laughs> hmm. um, yeah. All right, formative. I'll check off the box for formative then. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to add that all the Lucas Art games from that period are wonderful, but I I I would like to put a plug in for Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis yeah. as being the lost fourth uh indiana jones movie i think that that i will make an argument that that game has as good a plot as any of the indiana jones movies and i kept waiting for them to make that into a movie Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's also one of the better one, uh, uh, but one of the kind of critiques of the LucasArts games is they don't have a lot of uh, replayability because once you solve a puzzle, uh, you kind of. And I, I even had the experience where I went and played one of the Secret of Monkey Island games when they re-released it for Xbox, and it was like I have not played this game in eighteen years, and I know the answer to every puzzle <laughs> because it was burned into my childhood mind. But the Indiana Jones game had uh, three different paths through it, so there was more replayability to it. Um, yeah. Atlantis could literally be in a different place uh, in each in each story. <laughs> I remember my mum because my mum played a lot of point and click because hence why we had all the all the looks at point and click ones and she played Atlantis and I remember that she didn't know there were three different choices and she ended up choosing one where you have to do a lot of the little fights. So I remember and I chose one where you had Sophia with you for most of the time so you could have someone to talk to. But I remember my mum. On the, key, on the keyboard, learning how to fight in the Indiana Jones game and hammering away in frustration and annoyance because she had all these battles. And I was like, no, nope, not had to fight a single person. It's all fine. It's all good. Chilling. What are you, what are you, do, or would you prefer that I did the fighty thing, Mom? Mm-hmm. Would that be better? Is that what you want to teach me? But that was funny because she doesn't do fighty games and she had to learn to fight. All right. That's, uh, that's good stuff. As an old person, I'll just point out that it didn't make my list, but, uh, uh, the uh, we had before we, there were graphic point and click games. There was just text adventures, and I did play the and, and everybody remembers uh, like the Infocom games. And if Monty were here, he would talk about the Infocom games. But for me, we really got into when I was in elementary school the Scott Adams adventures. A different Scott Adams than the guy who uh, did Dilbert. This is the the text adventure Scott Adams and uh, pirate adventure in particular. My friends and I just huddled around and uh, was it a, an Apple II or maybe a, I think it was an Apple II and just that was how we spent our recesses and our lunches for a long time was trying to figure out how you could get you know where you could take the mongoose and drop it to scare off the snake so that you could get the bottle of rum so that you could give it to the pirate all of those things and and uh, back in my day you know we didn't have pictures we had to imagine it yeah see that's just an old person talking anyway uh that so i get it i get it even though i was too old for the lucas arts games i, I think. played text adventures you know yeah that's fine i they're, they're remember fine. them they're fine well actually that's, that's not true i didn't play them i watched my dad playing them. <laughs> they were still sometimes there was a picture my understanding is that the infocom games you know that's the like everybody remembers those and those are the classic ones and no one wants to talk about the the lesser more commercial or whatever scott adams games but those are the ones we had and we played them and we loved them so um joe Steele, it's your turn what uh what tales of childhood influence do you have for us 
Well, uh, I, much like Gene and you, I was influenced by Star Trek, but I was influenced by Star Trek The Next Generation, uh, because that was what was on when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, I remember plots and episodes and all kinds of stuff about it, but I also remember the, uh, one of the things that I thought was really interesting was seeing, uh, visual effects as primitive as they are when you look at them today um you could see those occurring on a weekly basis which is something that wasn't really happening on a lot of other television shows at the time uh so even if you liked uh star wars or uh anything else you were just watching the same effects over and over and in this one you could see you know it should it might be reconstituted from several other model kits and maybe the same spaceship from some alien species would just have some fins glued on for the next week or something but it was it was a uh, it was just sort of a new thing you could you could look at uh, each time uh and uh i uh have to say that 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 definitely informed what i wanted to do uh, as a career as well so i i, I liked uh, that now did you uh when you were watching star trek the next generation was it like in syndication where it was on every day or were you watching it week by week when it was on like on on you know when they were doing the new episodes and releasing them or both uh both All because right. we uh we had a wtog your 44 in tampa florida mm -hmm. and they would uh show on a weekly basis, the episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation, but they would also supplement that sometimes with uh, some of the, the uh, reruns of other episodes they'd air occasionally. And uh, I, like, I remember being really mad one time when we went to uh, stay at the beach and there was supposed to be an episode of Star Trek that was new and I missed most of it because we didn't get back to uh, the, the hotel room in time. And mm -hmm. you couldn't you couldn't just watch it again at any other point you were you were done mm -hmm. and uh mm -hmm. I, I believe that episode was the inner light um oh my god and it was i just saw the end of the inner light <laughs> so that was that overrated was, yeah yeah the end the end of an emotional journey without the rest of the emotional journey of course what could be i had that happen with doctor who at one point where my pbs station would run through doctor who stories and we had a um we had a power outage because it snowed and there was like uh, I would read these books about Doctor Who and then be like, oh, yes. And then in this this uh, Tom Baker story, and I'd be like, that's the snow one. I didn't see <laughs> that one. And it was just, that was it. I had to wait uh, years for it to come back around before I could see it again. And that was that was how it was back in the day, kids. It's terrible. Yeah. And then all the cable channels kept doing... Uh, uh, marathons basically because they had nothing to show, mm -hmm. so they would just <laughs> do TNG uh, filler things. So I caught up on a lot of the the missed episodes that way uh, later on, but uh, the, there there were many that I missed in my childhood. I think watching things in first run versus in reruns really changes your relationship with something because, like what I was saying to Gene, like Star Trek the original series, that was a companion five days a week, and I would see the episode, I'd be like, oh, it's this one, to the point where to this day, mm -hmm. I think if you show me one. One second of of an episode of the original series i can probably tell you what episode it is just they're burned on my brain whereas tng i watched it every week which means i loved it and it was part of the fabric of my college like social life like everybody in my college watched star trek it was it was uh it was it was the show for college kids in the in in the uh, late 80s and early 90s and and it was, but it was like I was living my life while those seven years went by and we watched it every week. And 
when I was revisiting the, I just bought the Blu-ray set of TNG and I was looking at some of the episodes and going like, I have no idea which episode this is because I probably only saw it once. And that's just mm-hmm. a very different relationship than seeing, maybe I rewatched it, you yeah. know, a, a couple of times, but it's not the same relationship that I have with the show I watched every day as a kid when I had nothing better to do and it was on every day or in a marathon. I also think that if you have unlimited access to watching something, and you can watch it whenever, and you can watch it multiple times. Um, it you can't compare that to how it was to watch it. You know, as Joe points out, like you missed it, and you you totally That's missed it. it. You know, so you watch things like so intentionally, like no, but you didn't watch anything ironically because you didn't even <laughs> know what it was going to be about yet, right? You know, you, you couldn't hate watch a show. Well, I don't know. You probably depends on the show, but you. We just were watching things like really like, uh, you know, in a, in a state of like, what's going to happen this week? And that's, you know, that's different than like, oh, I can identify this show, you know, from the first second, because I know exactly what's going to happen now. Yeah. And also, it was at a weird point in time where uh it was mostly episodic. There were occasionally mm-hmm. things that would carry over from episode to episode, but very infrequently. Uh, so you could theoretically have missed that week, you know, and uh, missed most of the inner light. Uh, but then you could watch <laughs> the next episode and uh, you would be fine and you, you weren't like kicked out of the loop. So that's, that is, of course, one of the benefits to episodic television at that in the in the in that era all right lots of star trek happening here tony do you do you have another choice or are you just uh, gonna say yes lucas arts games is is what you wanted to talk about uh yeah i so S- S- secret of monkey island was at the top of my list uh we've talked about that a bunch so i don't think i need to say that anything more about that and that was that was definitely kind of the the top one for me uh the second one which i guess we haven't mentioned yet so i will mention for me super formative uh was salmon Max hit the road, uh, which uh, I think there was a, a disc-based version of it, but I, I played the CD-ROM version of it, and that was so that was you know what what you wanted from a LucasArts adventure game in terms of pointing and clicking and solving puzzles, uh, but because it was a CD-ROM game, it had full voice for all the characters, so there's even kind of more um, immersion into this kind of cartoon world. Uh, the Sam and Max game is also kind of interesting to me in that like it's kind of amazing that it exists um, because it is based on uh, I believe kind of an underground comic from the 80s that like how would that get adapted into a graphic adventure game except that the guy who wrote that underground comic in the 80s worked at LucasArts and apparently had been like incorporating the characters into like the company newsletter and things like that so there was this like huge cult following for this this comic that no one had read within the LucasArts company so they made a game about this comic <laughs> that probably no one had ever heard of uh and the the sense of humor in Sam and Max is very bizarre uh Sam and Max are a cartoon dog who wears a suit and tie and looks kind of like a detective and a cartoon rabbit who does not wear anything and they are freelance police which is not a thing um which which is basically they're detectives slash crime solving people slash kind of act like cops but totally aren't and the salmon max hit the road game is a a mystery that takes them on like a road trip around america and it's very based around like tourist traps like the world's largest ball of, of twine and they are looking for a stolen bigfoot and it's like it's it's really great and weird and like 
totally plays up a lot of the strange like Americana stuff that I find fascinating and, and, and weird and strange. Uh, and it's, it's kind of subversive for something that was supposed to be borderline okay for kids to play. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's the one other LucasArts thing I'll mention that we haven't already uh, talked about a bunch. All right. That's great. Well, let's, uh, let's do another, uh, let's do another round here and uh, go back to Gene. Yes. As I reached into my memory banks on things that really, um, stayed with me and shaped what my ideas of really science fiction. Like I'm, I'm not, um, I'm not a total science fiction nerd, but I sure did watch a lot of the, uh, stuff that came out, um, in the fifties and sixties, because again, television, um, would fill in gaps in their, their, uh, programs, usually not the the major networks. So there were three major networks. There was public television. And then sometimes there's this like extra independent television station that would use. And in Miami, where I grew up, uh, WCIX, they used to watch, uh, they used to show, um, it wasn't creature feature exactly, but it was definitely like old movies from, uh, uh, that were some were horror, some science fiction, some science fiction horror. And I, um, a, a bunch of those came to mind because we would end up seeing them more than once because they would just be in rotation every so often and you could see them more than once. But The Time Machine, um, 1960 uh, film um, based on the H.G. Wells novel, that really, that sh- shocked and scared me again. <laughs> I, I don't know. Probably why I'm not such a huge science fiction nerd, because I got so tra- traumatized as a child. Um, seeing um, that notion that you could go so far ahead in time that human, you know, culture would have like disintegrated and gone backwards into this like primitive um, uh, culture of the Morlocks and uh that really, really scared me. And that had, that was a twist. You know, that was definitely, I hadn't read the book um, or anything like that. I just, you know, I'm watching it um, on television on the weekends. But um, the notion that you could go so far ahead in time that you would basically see that we had destroyed the earth. And I think that one of the things, I mean, I have no scientific you know, a uh, proof of this, but I do feel like if you grew up when I did in the in the sixties, like even though you didn't understand nuclear annihilation, like and and you did all the adults around you, you know, had it on their mind, and especially like say in Florida where I grew up, you know, we had the Cuban Missile Crisis, and I was only you know two or three years old, but I had this 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 like sense that everybody around me would have been very worried and watching television um, to see what was going to happen. So seeing things that have that kind of, um, you know, apocalyptic uh, ending um, or possibility that, you know, definitely made an impression on me. But it's also time, that Time Machine movie is really beautiful movie to watch. Um, The, the costumes, you know, the Victorian period and the costumes and the sets and Rod Taylor is very handsome. Um, I really really like that a lot. So yeah, I, I could say again, it gave me sort of those, those feelings of excitement slash nightmares oh. um, that I associate with science fiction. <laughs> nice. Uh, that's George Powell, who also did um, War of the Worlds and When Worlds Collide. So yes, lots of which is also apocalyptic in the truest <laughs> sense. 
because the earth gets yeah. totally destroyed in that movie but that's okay there's another planet it's fine <laughs> all right uh john what's uh what's another one from you okay well because my first one wasn't obscure enough <laughs> one thing that i've noticed every that's common to all of these memories is we keep bringing up the way in which we got the media and how the media was disseminated because we now live in the era of the internet where everything is available at all times and that has completely changed the way that you relate to media so i'm going to discuss something that i saw once that left a mark on me and i'm not exactly sure what it was and what i saw <laughs> and i have spent the rest of my life trying to figure this out this is a um, by way also of, of introducing this back before there were even VHSs, there was a service called swank, which was, which sounds pornographic, uh -huh. but it was actually, it was actually <laughs> a distribution company that would sell or would rent like 16 millimeter prints of movies to colleges and schools. So you could show a movie at your, your, your school. And that was the way that you got commercial movies once they had left the theater for good. And the, so I uh, would go to my local college when I was about eight or nine or 10. And I would watch like, that was the first way I ever saw 2001 of space odyssey and stuff. I would go to see these movie nights and one movie night they said that they were going to have a movie a, a night of short films about the devil and it is that one of the it, is, it was at this thing that i saw this film called i am the devil which as far as i can tell dates to about 1976 it was weird it was bizarre it was upsetting it was a psychedelic movie a uh, psychedelic animated film that has almost no plot but it showed devils cavorting it showed lucifer holding court with his group of of lesser demons and there were it it looked like peter max it looked like yellow submarine it had music it had strange uh rotoscoping it was confusing to me deeply confusing to me and for many years after i wondered if I had actually seen this film because <laughs> I could not find any record of this movie existing anywhere. And then when the internet came along, I was like, Oh sure. I'll just plug it into, uh, to a Google search and I'm sure I will find it. And no, I did not find it. So for many years, I started to doubt my own, my own sanity until suddenly about 10 years ago, I found a poster for it online for sale and it said among other things that it was a it was directed by steve lisberger who it turns out was the animator for tron the original tron and also the animator for a very strange animated film that was show that showed on hbo in the 80s all the time called animal olympics that probably a lot of people will remember so i tried to figure out if i could with armed with this information if i could find anything more but it's not listed on his imdb page and 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 so for a long time i would i i didn't know that i would ever have anything more than this poster to go on and then a friend of mine saw that on the poster it said by the producer of yellow submarine and she found on a very sketchy brazilian ftp site somewhere <laughs> a pdf of heavy metal magazine from 1980 that mentioned that this 
movie had never found backing and had never gotten into circulation, which makes me even more curious to what the hell is the story of how it got to, to be there. And just last week, I was able to find by plugging in the production company, uh, I, I was, I was able to find a, a notice from a billboard in 1972 saying that Arnold Maxson, uh, uh, had f- signed on as a consultant for Folio One Productions for a animated and live action film based on Dante's The Divine Comedy, which I assume is this movie. So what I'm saying here is I don't know much about this film, but this film has obsessed me for at least 40 years of my life. And I, I beg, I beg listeners out there, if you know anything <laughs> about the film, I am the devil that was directed by Steven Lisberger for Folio One Productions came out sometime in the 1970s. Tell me about it or don't, because I feel that if I find it, I will, it, it will utterly fail yeah. to live up to any expectation I have for it. But then you'll be free. <laughs> <laughs> but this explains a lot about my, uh, my lifelong obsession with, uh, marginalia and the the more obscure something is and the harder it is to understand or at least to to find any information on it the more that's catnip for me <laughs> yeah i i the the chase of trying to find something that that you you're not quite sure whether it existed or not and then and then getting some sort of signal that maybe it did and that you weren't just imagining that i've had that happen a couple of times although never to this kind of extreme degree <laughs> um but that that is uh that's amazing i i remember like uh i went to the festival of animation in college and you know, the the spike and Mike one and some of those were super obscure and you're right the internet kind of uh, uh, just eliminates most mystery from the world but you still you still have some of it I've also revisited old stuff that I was like oh yeah I have good memories of this and and you know famously you revisit it and and it's there's nothing to it I think everyone who lived through the 80s remembers night flight and and watching little animated segments on Night Flight like Jack Mac and Rad Boy Go, and you had no idea where these things came from. They were they were terrifying because they seemed to bubble up out of out of the ether. You know, today you know you can find anything with a couple of clicks. I still have some like some zines and some collections of comics that were published in my my like uh, college student newspaper and you know stuff that would all be web comics today or, or other things that would have been more back backed up and archived and things like that that I treasure but in part like you know some of it is nostalgia and some of it's like mm, some of this stuff is quite clever and some of it is like there's a, like this basically doesn't exist anywhere else anymore. Um yeah. All right, everybody out there listening, within the sound of my voice, I am the devil, animated film from the 70s, Steve Lisberger. Please let us know what the deal is. Um, this could be the theme of a whole show. Could be. Like, like milk carton moments. Yep, fine. Incomparable. Find this thing. I'm, I'm pretty sure this thing existed. Um, Liz, what else would you like to talk about? Well, keeping to my self-imposed themes of computer games. Um I, uh, there's a lot of things that I like in sci-fi and admittedly a lot of those are informed by Doctor Who and Star Trek, both of which, you know, I started remembering those. I don't remember when I first like watched those. However, there's also a lot informed, there's a lot of stuff, spacey stuff that isn't anything to do with either of them really. I like, I like my space feudalism. I don't have a problem with that. I think that's great when we like go back a few hundred years and start doing Dividing up planets amongst uh, 
uh, nobility, because, you know, what could possibly go wrong with that? And I like my epic galactic politics, and I like swords in space, and I like weird spaceships and and um, ridiculously overcomplicated uh, world building and how the giant galactic empire thing is put together. And all of that comes from um, the original Dune video game, <laughs> which was released <laughs> in 1992, I think. And uh, that was... That, that was something that, um, I think it was like, it's like two megabytes. It's absolutely tiny. And I also played it again, like last year, and it's still really good. I think it's amazingly impressive in its sort of scope and gameplay and epicness, uh, when it's trying to adapt this incredibly complicated novel, um, and also taking quite a lot of influence from David Lynch's, uh, adaptation of, of Dune and, uh, and converting it into a computer game. And uh, there's, it's, it was really neat because there's like two different layers to it. One is sort of pseudo RPG where you're following the plot and wandering around different places on the planet. And, uh, you know, you're traveling all over this world. You can go anywhere on this world, which one of the coolest thing is things. It was like, this is totally open world. Okay, most of it is just watching your little flying icon or your little giant sandworm going across the map. But that sort of screensaver of you swishing forwards looks really cool. And you can watch the little map, the little uh, pixels just get slightly longer and longer as you continue your journey. And sometimes, if, if you've got someone with you, they'll spot something and you can like go land and see it. And it's like a siege of which there are like three different versions of. So they all basically look the same. But still, that was amazing at the time. And uh, that was, you know, that was cool. And I didn't actually know what the story of Juno was, so it was, you know, it was very dramatic to me when when uh, your the, your character's father, Gladio Trades, died. And you know, I'm assuming that everyone knows the plot of Juno here, but it's that you're the heir to the Atreides family, and you're fighting the Harkonnens, who are a different family that you're like ancient villain enemy thing going on and you have to mine spice on the planet Dune and send it to the Emperor who gets really demandy for spice and never says thank you throughout the whole game which actually really annoys me now because uh, yeah when I was playing before didn't notice it as a child but now I'm like huh you're kind of rude Mr. Emperor and I'm doing all this really hard work anyway as as well as following the sort of adventure through there's also the um, the exciting uh, I say that sarcastically it's not it's not sarcastic um, there's the uh uh, running the mining operations and uh, also converting enough of your uh, helpful people into the military to fight your enemy, the Harkonnen, who are also on the planet. And you know you have to you have to do some strategy there. It isn't it isn't terribly difficult. It wasn't terribly difficult when I was playing this the first time, and it was very small. But um, but it was still fun. It was still exciting. And sometimes the Harkonnens attacked you, and that just it felt kind of amazing at the time, especially when you like lost accidentally got your little people killed because you could you could check in whilst they're attacking somewhere, and it's like oh we're taking terrible losses here. We've died. A thousand of us has died. We've only killed ten Harkonnens. I felt terrible. You know, I was murdering my little people there, and there was nothing I could do to help them. I wasn't going to have them retreat like cowards, so they would all have to die. And, uh, you know, that 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 was, uh, that's how that was, that's sensible strategy. Anyway, playing this game, it was, I thought this was amazingly cool and brilliant. 
And um, the the sequel, Dune 2, I think is like one of the big original uh, real-time strategy games. And that kind of, I, I love that as well because, you know, it's the same world and there's the same sense of politics. But this was, you know, real-time strategy was exciting in an entirely different way. And um, when I got to high school, which was some years later in the, our high school library, I spotted these books on the shelf called June hmm. and June Messiah and Children <laughs> of June. And I was like, I know that name. I know that name. And I looked at it and I was like, oh my God, it's a book. <laughs> and uh, up until that point, I hadn't actually read any sort of science fiction novels. And I was like, oh, I must read this. And I thought it was brilliant. I love it. It's still my favorite book. And that's what got me uh, just reading science fiction generally. That was when I started after reading like Frank Herbert reading like Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke and bro, all Roger Lazenby. I know who wrote the thing. Um, but yeah, a whole big bunch of, of classic science fiction authors, um, overwhelmingly men. Uh, and, and sort of, <laughs> yeah, I only noticed that when I was like 19 or something. I was like, hang on, have I read anyone who isn't a dude apart from Le Guin for like the past 10 years? That seems a bit, that's not right. And then I changed my reading habits. But basically, June is responsible for my love of literary science, literary, not, well, it's not all literary, but written down science fiction. And, um, also for all, for all my preferences and what I want to see in my written down science fiction. And for, you know, I don't know, some people don't like swords in space and think people should, people shouldn't be fighting duels. Those people are wrong. Huh. Um, but, uh, but that's what I really want, want to see. And it was thanks to, thanks to the game. Lovely game. Everyone should play the game. I think again the childhood thing where you you play a video entire video game based on Dune, which is ba- based in large part on the on the movie, and it's only years later that you realize, oh, this is also a series of books. Again, that is that's childhood. Yeah. You have no context. You don't understand. <laughs> it's fine. You figure it out later. It's all it's all. Yeah, that was cool. Uh, Joe, what do you have? Uh, I'm tempted to not pick Star Wars and just <laughs> leave that as an influence that hasn't affected any of us. But uh, I, I, I'm not I'm not familiar with this. Tell me more. <laughs> uh, I, I will go ahead and say uh, the the uh, THX VHS set of the original Star Wars movies when they did that refresh and uh, big marketing push of releasing that when I was a, a kid uh-huh. uh, was was pretty impactful in being able to see the entire series because before that I had either to catch it on TV or I had one really horrible VHS recording with commercial breaks um, from whenever it had aired on some channel uh, in the past. And that was only for the, the very first Star Wars movie. So being able to watch all of them whenever I wanted was a big deal because I could skip over all the boring Jabba's, Jabba's Palace stuff and just go right to the spaceship battle at the end of Return of the Jedi or uh, skip around wherever I wanted to go in uh, Empire Strikes Back or watch the entire thing because um, I know people are screaming like, oh, you got to watch it beginning to end because it's a movie, whatever. Uh, but uh, it was it was just great being able to watch that whenever I wanted to. Um, and and uh, you didn't get the chance to see anything about how it was put together, any behind-the-scenes stuff, uh, but you also didn't have uh, any CG do-backs or, uh, you know, uh, rocks that were put over R2-D2 or any of this other stuff, uh, so it was it was still kind of a pure experience if you if you wanted to tap into that, uh, so I, I really like that. These are, these are the the special edition VHS is this like the last version that was oh, on VHS? Not, not this is not special edition. This no, is the original. No, yeah. Okay, this is the the last the last time. Oh, this is the last chance to see before we completely 
turn them around and make them into special editions version. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was basically the only way you could uh, watch it in your home um, b- before you had, uh, unless you had the, the LaserDisc version. Right. Because um, I don't think there was any other version that was available uh, unless you had recorded it off of TV, like I, like I had said previously, and you were enjoying like commercial breaks and tracking problems. Sure. Um, but uh, they had also cleaned up some things and uh, and also the sound. Um, so it was, it was nice to be able to have that version. All right. That's, that's a, uh, yeah, the relationship, this goes back to something. I mean, this is all of us have experienced this, uh, transition from scarcity to a complete lack of scarcity in media. And this is an example of like, how did I was trying to think, when did I buy a copy of star Wars for the first time? And I, I don't, I think, I think it might be like the DVDs when they came out. So I don't think I even had the VHS copy of it. It was on TV and yeah, I, I just, it, but, but back in the day you had very limited access to this stuff. So, all right. Uh, Tony, uh, I'm going to talk more about Star Wars. All right, let's do <laughs> so, it. It's on the draft, whatever. Um, Anything goes. Yeah. Uh, no, but specifically I'll talk about a Star Wars adjacent thing. Uh, so I think, uh, Joe and I are probably somewhat similar in age. Uh, I don't have a memory of seeing Star Wars for the first time. Star Wars was just a thing that was always around. Uh, I, I my family had the, uh, the, the three pack of the, the movies with the THX versions. Uh, and that was very exciting to be able to rewatch Star Wars, uh, as much as possible. And I specifically remember uh, in junior high school, uh, a guide to the Star Wars universe was released, which was basically a Star Wars encyclopedia. Uh, this was in the days before we had Wikipedia or Wikipedia. Uh, and so it was amazing. <laughs> this was also, I think, before we had all the Star Wars and Star Trek technical manuals that would come out. So it was basically this kind of, uh, I don't know, it was probably like a 300-page uh, Star Wars encyclopedia that was probably not meant to be read covered to cover uh but my junior <laughs> high school friends and i did i remember i have distinct uh ch- childhood memories of like quizzing each other about random star wars uh facts in at, like in the cafeteria at lunchtime uh the the early 90s was a, a kind of a, a different time for star wars there was expanded universe stuff but there was only like a little bit like there was uh I think just the Zon novels and some stuff in the comics and some stuff in some RBG stuff. And they, you know, basically it was still like, there's only a little bit. This is as equal weight to the stuff in the movies, right? Right guy making an encyclopedia of Star Wars stuff? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Whatever. Apparently um, the first bullet point, according to Wikipedia, of the publisher's mm. summary of this, so presumably what was on the back of the book, was who or what was Salacious Crumb? Uh, Salacious Crumb is a Kowakian monkey lizard, and he is Jabba the, Jabba the Hutt's, uh, I don't know what his rank is, but yeah, he's that guy. We also, we yeah, all know now who or Did we what. all know that he was a Kowakian monkey lizard? Hopefully. And now you do if you didn't. Yep. Um, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so that was, I mean, I, I think this was before, uh, we had, uh, you know, I think we had printouts of stuff from Usenet, but we did not have a lot of the, uh, the deep reference material. I mean, it's like when I watch Star Trek, uh, episodes now, I can go and, and immediately read the Memory Alpha article right. during or immediately following every episode I watch. We, we didn't have that. Uh, but this was a delightful thing to, you know, to get the exact pieces of information about every stupid spaceship and every background person in Jabba the Hutt's palace who mainly exists so that there can be an action figure of him uh, and, and, and all that kind of, kind of rubbish that was uh, delightful uh, to, to young children. Um, Yeah. 
I don't know if I have anything else to say about right. the Star Wars Encyclopedia. That's good. I, so. I mean, one of my beloved uh, childhood objects was the um, Star Trek blueprints, mm-hmm. which were, I mean, they were they were blueprint size. They were super long, like fold out, like multi, like they were they were like I don't know, almost like a y- a yard maybe or a little bit yes, mm-hmm. le- less in width, and then kind of like eight and a half inches high and they were all like blueprints of the uss enterprise from the original show mm-hmm. and that's it no text there was like a, a grid listing like all the constitution class starships with their code you know with their ncc numbers um but otherwise it was just like let's look at the let's look at deck five <laughs> like, and that's all it was and i loved it i just would and i don't that. know if this is like a reflection on the stuff that was being made then or just what i was stumbling across as a kid and like you know i mean i i i was i was, I was a small nerd i you know the things that people would gift me for christmas and birthdays were just it was just all star trek and star wars stuff right uh and i received a lot of star wars and Star Trek related books. And uh, specifically, I remember receiving a lot of Star Trek books that were like about the making of, uh, especially even things that I didn't super care about, like making of the original series stuff or making of various movies that were not TNG movies because there weren't any TNG movies yet. Uh, and like, I didn't care at all about the making of Star Trek or the making of Star Wars. I cared more about like, yes, tell me more fictional facts about this fictional spaceship. This is what I care about. I don't care about the model that they used for the, uh, of the, of the TIE fighter for making these scenes, but tell me more about the specs of this ship that doesn't actually exist. That's yep. what I care about. Yeah. Uh, the lore is important. Yeah, so it seemed like there was a lot of making of Star Trek stuff, or at least I was gifted a lot of making of Star Trek stuff that I super did not care about, as opposed to fictional histories of things that don't exist. Uh, I was much more into lore. Yeah, I was I was in a similar situation where I had um, <laughs> uh, Mr. Scott's Guide to the Enterprise, which is the movie era uh, stuff, uh, not as old as the original series blueprints, uh, and also the Star Trek technical manual, uh, Star Trek the Next Generation technical manual, um, and, it, and they even have these conceit, conceits of them being in universe or something. It was it was ridiculous, uh, but the. Uh, like I think the Mr. Scott's Guide to the Enterprise had a had a, a foreword that was supposed to be written by <laughs> Montgomery Scott or something, but uh, it was uh, interesting to read that stuff. And I always wanted the Star Trek Omnipedia, um, which was just an an enormous book uh, that I would always see in the bookstores, but uh, I never I never possessed. I did have the Klingon to English Dictionary. Though. Oh yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Me too. Not a good, not a good read. I didn't read that oh. cover to cover like Tony and his <laughs> friends read the uh, <laughs> Star Wars Guide. Not, we had a lot of time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's good. Good, good stuff. Good stuff. Um, okay. I'm going to really quickly, I'm going to, I, I'm going to mention a computer thing too, which I wasn't originally thinking of, but Liz inspired me. And I think that this is, this is, uh, was formative to me. So when I was a kid, you know, I, I, I played baseball. I was a baseball player. Uh, I was terrible and we did win we our, our team won two games in four years it was terrible um but i liked baseball as a kid and we listened to it on the radio and all of that but it was all just kind of vague and and uh you know i was pulling for my team and and not not paying too much attention really and then uh in seventh grade i discovered uh ssi computer baseball which is a uh stat based baseball game it's a strategy game where instead of trying to like a lot of baseball games or sports games in general you're the player 
and that's true to this day, but there is this subgenre, which is you're the kind of like the strategist, whether you're building a team, uh, a bunch of sports games now have like two different modes where you can uh, build a team or you can play the games and you can do both. Um, there are also games like Championship Manager is a good example. There's a soccer one where you're building up a franchise. SSI Computer Baseball, you could, um, you, you would be the manager of the team. You could play against a computer manager or a friend. And we actually had a league in seventh and eighth grade where we would go at lunch and we we would play and we had a schedule and we would play games against each other and you you would choose your pitcher and choose your lineup and you'd input all of that and then you'd say i want to pitch i want to you know i i want to try to uh get a double play here all of these sorts of things and warm people up in the bullpen all those things and that completely changed my made, made me interested in baseball really for the first time um it, at, at this level of detail it completely changed my relationship with the sport where i started to think about it from that perspective instead of just being bad at it and the really the unlocking moment was was uh, when you discovered that the program had within it the facility to create uh, team discs where you could basically format a disc and get a copy of a baseball encyclopedia and put in a, a player's name and statistics and play that player's team or assemble an all-star team or anything like that. And that uh, that was a rabbit hole that we all went down and we created like fictional teams with our own names on them. And we were amazing. We could destroy all the <laughs> greatest teams of all time, but we could also, you know, that that's why I ha ended up with a baseball reference book that I ended up kind of like falling into that. So it was one of these things where I ended up falling in love with the sport more because I came at it from this like history and statistics and angle. And then that later, later manifested in discovering, uh, a dice-based baseball game that I played in high school and, uh, you know, fantasy baseball, rotisserie baseball, and things like that. And so what I'm saying is when I say I like baseball and uh, I disappoint nerds, trust me, nerds, the reasons I like baseball are, do not betray our shared uh, trust <laughs> is what I'm saying. And But SSI Computer Baseball on the Apple II is where that all started. That was that was the... Uh, that was the place where that all that all happened because there's nothing better than a pic a very rough a crudely drawn Apple II baseball diamond with a little tiny white dot that very slowly moves from <laughs> one black dot to another dot uh, indicating that a, a a pitch has been made woo that's exciting um, anyway that's that's uh, that's my story and I'm sticking with it let's go around one last time and this is going to have to be quick this is the proverbial lightning round but if there's stuff that you mentioned that or that you didn't get a chance to mention that you want to throw out there really quickly before we go I think now would be the time to do that so bring out your dead bring out your your, your unmentioned favorites Gene do you have uh, what do you what did you have left that you wanted to throw out there um Batman uh the TV show uh, <laughs> I always wait, 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 not all of Batman, Batman just the, the proper Batman Adam, the proper no, one no 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 Batman hmm. Hmm. yeah yeah <gasps> Batman hmm. uh, <laughs> I watched that hmm. almost every day when it was on yeah mm -hmm. right yeah I mean again it was something that was on like when I was a kid and was kid appropriate um I, in fact I only realized much later how much of it was you know uh, I didn't realize it was a parody, of course, because not old enough to understand um, parody. I actually believe they were walking up walls when they had their ropes, um, <laughs> you know, they, and going they by the They're superheroes. Of course they were scaling the walls. <laughs> I was like, these guys are really good at this. Wow. <laughs> They're like not out of breath or anything. Um, and, but mainly, uh, I loved it because Batgirl 
she just had the coolest apartment and motorcycle and costume and she was a librarian and it was like I could be that kind of superhero if I could just ha- have a, a motorcycle and a, a purple costume uh-huh. with a gold cape and um, yeah so that was pretty exciting for me so I, I think I'll, um, I don't need to bring out all the other dead all I right. want to leave it on that Batgirl note because she was one of my my heroes great Fantastic. John, any last uh, last items you want to get out there? Any any obscure things you need to find? Well, actually, now, <laughs> now, now I'm going to, to turn from obscurity to what I think everyone is expecting me to say. Uh, I grew up in a, a PBS household, and we watched an awful lot of Masterpiece Theater. And uh, th- I just wanted to point out a, a few se- series on Masterpiece Theater I Claudius from 1978. Oh, yeah. Woo! Uh, the Pride and Prejudice uh, that was uh, rec- done in by the BBC in 1980, but then uh, shown in America in 81. I know a lot of people are very partial to the Colin Firth Pride and Prejudice from the 90s, but for me, Elizabeth Garvey will always be the true Elizabeth. And Brides Had Revisited from oh, gosh, 1981 yeah. um that was a major thing when it came out on tv mm-hmm. and it, it it was like 11 episodes it was a very long exhausting uh an emotional miniseries but what i remember most about that is jeremy uh irons does a narrative uh, there's a voiceover throughout that entire series. It's a, it's the older Charles Ryder talking about back on the younger Charles Ryder's life. And it's maudlin and it's sentimental and it's sad. And I fell in love with that voice so much that for the next 20 years of my life, whenever I would have some sort of a, a moment in my life that I was recognizing as a moment, I would imagine Jeremy Irons <laughs> narrating it to me and saying things like, but I would never again reached that level of happiness already i could see the salad days were fading into the distance so masterpiece theater masterpiece, I, I so i only had i grew up um my parents i remember were were um riveted by i claudius and you know i was you know sent to bed but um i absolutely remember that and that was one of my earliest kind of uh concepts that they were there were these shows from other places shows that were not star trek essentially is what i'm saying but also from <laughs> from england and not just from uh not just from america and uh and then it was only later that we the the pbs was on enough in our house that, that likewise we we ended up uh uh, I remember obsessively watching All Creatures Great and Small um, on when it was on our local PBS station, and that all that that's why when I discovered that the the young vet from All Creatures Great and Small was going to be in this science fiction show, that I was very interested in that, and uh, discovered Doctor Who. But I was uh, I was there with uh, with All Creatures Great and Small first. So, uh, Liz, what do you have left? Uh, I shall race through my remaining thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them, uh, first one, Sid Meier's Civilization, which. Uh, is that how you pronounce Meir? Is it Meir? Because I, I really don't know. I assumed it was um, but, Meyer, but I don't know. Okay, Sid, Sid Meyer's civilization. I've been mispronouncing it for uh, 25 odd years. Or maybe oh, I have. Um, I don't know. Maybe, but, uh, maybe it's Mayer. Maybe it's... 
Meyer. It's Meyer. It's really yeah. yeah. All right. But that kickstarted my love of history, and um, that was that made various teachers think that I was ever so clever for years and years and years. And it was just like, no, no, I've just played an awful lot of Civilization, and like they have a Civilopedia that you can read the stuff on so obviously you had to read every single thing so you knew how everything worked and sort of the temperaments of all the civilizations and it was accurate enough that you could like trick people into thinking you actually knew stuff um and it also the way to prevent uh, people cheating in that thing was the you they asked you questions about the technology tree and a big technology tree came with the box and uh we lost the technology tree but luckily, I had memorized the technology tree. <laughs> so I got asked, you know, uh, what's the right answer to this? And that was, you know, I was very helpful in that way. Um, and there's also slightly later, Age of Empires, especially Age of Empires 2. Again, making me love history. But also that introduced me to the beauty of the medieval siege weapon, the trebuchet. So I get very excited when trebuchets turn up in film or turn up in a computer game. Oh, I forgot what it's called, but there was like an more relatively recently where you in the PvP battles you could fire trebuchets, and I was like, oh my. See, God, I didn't learn the word trebuchet until Warcraft Two, where that was an important very siege, siege weapon. You, so mi- that's you what missed I got. out on years yeah, of enjoying. I did trebuchet watching action and the final one and just squeezing into my childhood more or less and formative years sort of would be knights of the old republic star wars mm-hmm. feel obligated to do a star wars one because mm-hmm. like almost everyone else has done one and that was my introduction to um to rpgs that has stuck with me ever since and i'm a huge Bioware obsessive scary fangirl person who loves and adores and has repeated like Dragon Age too many times and I always intend to do different things in it but I end up having the exact same storyline because I want to be the queen so you know that works out really well for everyone um but yeah uh nice little problem was like oh my god I get to be a Jedi I can talk to these people in interaction I can travel to different worlds and I have a spaceship and I was like oh my god this is amazing how good is this and that was the thing where I was like at university just and uh i basically spent a weekend and a bit shut in my room just playing this and i by the time that monday came around i was looking at my phone and i was like oh i had quite a lot of messages from various people asking if i was dead because i had not communicated with anyone for four days so you know healthy yep healthy love educational um, again yeah computer (laughs) games are educational yeah all of them. Very educational. Mm-hmm. Also made me do RPG, and uh, oh, sorry, made me do online gaming where I had to interact with other humans on the internet because there was the M Morg, uh, the Old Republic Star Wars, which I was scarily obsessed by for several years. But also that was good contact with other people. And I'd always wanted to do like online gaming, but I was, you know, I didn't have any real life people to do it with because they all did it on sodding boxes. What are they called again? Consoles. Mm, and I was like, not no, I'm a PC educational. Gamer. <laughs> yeah so i had to, i had to find people that i didn't even know to play with and i found some people and they were lovely and it was like wow this is great there's like other people who are nice and play games and don't yell at it cool all right uh joe what do you have left uh i got monty python and the holy grail uh which i feel informed uh some of my unfortunate sense of humor and uh, <laughs> uh and i also would for for humor purposes i would say when i was a when i was a very little kid uh, I watched uh, Tiny Toons Adventures and uh, Freakazoid and uh, Animaniacs and that whole WB mm. Steven Spielberg presents <laughs> thing. Yeah, that was the, all all the the stuff in there, Pinky and the Brain, etc. Uh, that 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 was uh, also sadly informative. 
I like that Monty Python comes out in a bring out your dead round. Yeah, of course. <laughs> of course. Referencing knowledge. Thank you, Tony. And go ahead. What do you have? Uh, well, I feel like I should have to mention my Batman, uh, uh-huh. Batman the Animated Series. Uh, <laughs> I will mention, I guess it's, I don't know, this counts as a work, right? Uh, Magic the Gathering, the collectible card game. Sure. Uh, which basically, I spent all of my allowance and snow shoveling money and just any any dollar that I got for like a good three or four years of my life went into that. Um, because what is geekier than spending all your money on something of no value? Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Consumerism. Um, I will mention uh, the Tripod series was a young adult science fiction oh that was my entry point into science fiction, um, it, which was also like a very weird. Uh, I don't beautiful. know. At least as a as like a as like a, a ten year old, it was like oh dystopian aliens controlling everything kind of thing. And but only you know it's it's YA. So guess what? Teenagers are going to save the day. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, we, we, that's how it works. But I feel like I should mention at a little bit more length, uh, just early, uh, tabletop role playing games. Uh, I, I got to play Dungeons and Dragons in junior high because there was, I did not have any friends yet, but there was a, uh, a D and D, uh, club after school where if you showed up, people would play D and D with you, even if they weren't your friend yet. Um, <laughs> yeah. I I was great. Um and but before that I will say the way I got into that uh into role playing game was I was given as a slightly younger child uh I very much enjoyed the uh, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and I was given the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and mm-hmm. other strangeness role playing game in the late 80s as a very small child uh which was a little bit one of those like mm, people should be careful about who they're giving gifts to in terms of how things line up uh because the uh the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle and Other Strangeness was based on the comics, so it was oh. a very gritty and grim Ninja Turtles uh, versus the like, you know, the Saturday Morning Kids cartoon show. Um, th- there were there's like a series of these in my life. See also uh, the Christmas where my sister gave me uh, the They Might Be Giants movie, which is just the n- movie that They Might Be Giants took the name of their band from that has no relation to. <laughs> um, <laughs> yep, haven't haven't watched that yet. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, sister. Um, but the uh, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle and Other Strangeness is a really grim, gritty city RPG. Uh, it's full of stat blocks of various mutant animals, which is ridiculous to me. So they'll just be stat blocks, and it's like, you know, here's here's what your stats would be for, like, every conceivable breed of dog that you might want to be a mutant of. And it's got great art of, like, you know, like a ferret holding a bow and arrow and, like, a bunch of sp- sparrows holding assault rifles and just you know it's it's just great art from that era of comics of like let's draw an animal and give them a weapon and make them look scary uh and in the grand tradition of role-playing games when you're a small child uh i of course i've never actually played this game i still have the book which is uh over 20 years old i I just pulled it out before today's recording session and maybe we'll play this someday for a total party kill but yeah i've never played it (laughs) i flipped through it and spent a lot of time thinking about what it would be like to play it but have never played it yeah so. i i d i never played D and i had the dungeon master's guide and the monster manual because it was so cool and i read it all and i could tell you about spells and stuff but never played mm-hmm. it because i didn't have a club yeah. in where i could go and people would just play D with me whether sure. they were my friends or not <laughs> you so. you never played D, but you knew all about manticores right i <laughs> i knew yes everything there was to you knew know enough in the monster yeah. manual about manticores yeah um, 
Okay, my my last items that I'll just mention uh, in passing. Uh, Lisa, the, I think Lisa's entire premise here was to let me mention the Micronauts, so there it is. The toys, I loved them, and then they made a, com- a Marvel comic that I also loved, and it was a science fiction comic, and I had only understood about like superhero comics, and, and even though it was in the Marvel Universe, it was much more of a space comic than it was a superhero comic, and it was great. Um, uh, the one book, I, the oldest book I have, the, the book I've owned the longest and can still continue to own is uh, James of the Giant Peach by Roald Dahl. We did an episode about it. Um, and I, I, I don't know what it is about that book, that book, but I love it. And the last one I wanted to mention, and this is perhaps the weirdest selection of all in that it is not quite a work, but a conduit to works, which is the science fiction book club, which I joined as a fairly young teenager where they would send you, you got to, you know, for a penny, you got five books, but then they sent you two books every month and you had to send them back if you didn't want them, which meant you were lazy and you would just buy them. But I will tell you my, at some point I was buying so many books and my mother said, I've got an idea. How about the service where they just will send you a couple of Dan books every month? And I was like, Oh, great, great, great. And I loved it. I sent back a few of those books, but I mostly, I just tore through them and read all those books and my science fiction book reading i mean i had read every book in the library in the children's section and then in the adult section that was plausibly a science fiction book and my school library i'd like read all of it um and so these were relatively new they were kind of like after they were uh out in hardcover for a while but before they went into paperback and some of them were omnibus editions like the Piers anthony um uh split infinity series uh was an omnibus edition of like all of the all three books put together but i just it was a huge uh supplier of all sorts of different kinds of science fiction books most of which i just read and uh, discovered amazing things and there was there were best of the year short fiction anthologies that would pop out once a year that i would read all these great short stories uh it was it was a huge thing for four or five years i guess um when I was in elementary school and high school. So uh, the science fiction book club, believe it or not, on my list. And that's it. We've reached the end. That was a lot of fun stuff, everybody. In fact, so fun, maybe we should do another episode about this with other people talking about their formative childhood media works. But that's for next time. I, uh, for this time, I just want to thank my guests on this episode. Gene McDonald, thank you for being here. Thank you. It was great. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. John McCoy, thank you, too. I hope people find or or at least give you clues that can lead you further in your quest for I am the devil. Please help me out. (laughs) That can be read a couple different ways. (laughs) John needs your help, whoever you are. Uh, Liz Miles, thank you. Thank you for letting me talk about computer games. Uh, Of course. Absolutely. Joe Steele, thank you. Thank you uh tony sindelar thank you very much i was really worried you weren't going to get batman in there but you did it i did i'm really looking forward to uh people uh tweeting at us that we forgot about this and x y and z and telling us that our our childhoods are therefore incomplete i can't believe you forgot about this thing from your own childhood yeah Yeah. jason 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 your formative moments are wrong yeah that's right Well, send those in. Uh, those are, uh, We're less excited about hearing from those people. I'll tell you what, you can send those in if you also send in a clue to I Am The Devil. That's your yes. deal. <laughs> if you can help John out, we will listen to what we got wrong in this. But anyway, uh, this was a lot of fun. And thanks to Lisa Pfizer for suggesting it, even though she's not on this episode. And I've been your host, Jason Snell, and we will see you next week. Bye, everybody. Bye.